All right, it's good to be back. I'm excited. We're going to do Christmas today at the end of May because we're the porch and that's how we roll. So let me just open us up in prayer and then uh, we'll read about uh, Jesus's birth. Lord, I thank you for um, the the theological truth of the incarnation that we're going to talk about today and how you became a man. And um, we, we thank you that truthfully... You are way too um, wonderful and grand for us to fully comprehend, but we thank you that you have still revealed a lot about who you are uh, to us. And so I just pray, Lord, that as we talk about this, that you would send your spirit um, to help our, 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 our minds understand uh, these kind of complicated truths so that, um, that we may love you more and we may serve you better. So we just pray all this uh, in your name. Amen. So like I said, we're going to be talking today about uh, Christmas, but what's the big deal with Christmas, right? Why? What is it that happened in Bethlehem? Well, like we read during the songs of Zechariah and Mary, those two songs that we read the last few weeks, what's happening here is God is visiting his people to save them. God has come down. Um, in the New City Catechism, which we just read, and I'll use a lot during sermons, um, it says this, the 20th question said, who is the Redeemer? Uh, and then the answer, the only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, in whom God became a man and bore the penalty for sin himself. And so that's what we're celebrating at Christmas, I guess Christmas in in May, right, is that God became a man and he humbled himself and he came down here to uh, redeem his people. And so the text for our sermon today is um, Luke 1, and we're just going to read the first uh, seven verses of Luke 1. But what we're actually going to do is just read it once and we're kind of going to skip over most of it and we're going to walk through it and describe it all like we normally do. We're going to do that next week. Um, and then today we're just kind of hit one theological topic. So I'll read it to you. It says, in, the, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor in Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, uh, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and, lay, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. So that's the text. And like I said, we're going to walk through it the way we normally walk through a text next week. Um, but this here is the moment where God became a human being, right? He has entered the story uh, as if Shakespeare had written himself into one of his plays. And in theology, we call this the incarnation. It is this grand and wonderful miracle. But one of the crazy things is just how um, how simply uh, Luke records one of the, the greatest moments in all of history. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. That's it. That's how this wonderful miracle is recorded. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, is the miracle of the incarnation, Jesus becoming a man, right? God becoming a man. So to start though, what we're going to do, so today's sermon's a little different. We're covering a theological topic, and this is going to be a little bit more uh, lectury, I guess. There's going to be a lot of information in this today. 
And you don't have to remember all of this. Just try to grasp some of the main points. Um, to start out, though, we're going to jump all the way back to Genesis, to the beginning of the story. And in Genesis 3.8, we see this verse right after the uh, Adam and Eve sin. It says this, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So in this verse, we see two uh, really important details. The first is we see the way that it was supposed to be, walking in the garden, right, in the, uh, the cool of the day with God. That kind of presence of God, that kind of communion with God, that is the way that things are supposed to be. But second, we see how sin has ruined all of this, right? They had just sinned, and when God comes down to go for a walk with them, they hide from him in fear and in shame, and much of the story of humanity, of human history, is the story of our attempt to get back to walking with God in the cool of the day. We all long for his presence the way that Adam and Eve had his presence, right? Um, so one example of this is in Exodus. We read Moses. It says this in Exodus 33. We read about Moses. It says, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for men shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, literally my hindquarters, uh, but my face shall not be seen. And so Moses' most desperate plea, right, the, the, the depths of his heart, what he wanted to do was see the face of God. He wants to see God's glory. He wants to be in his presence. But because of his sin, God says, look, I, I can't show you my face. It's too much for you because you're a sinner and we're separated. And so what I'll do is I'll just face you against the wall and I'll walk behind you uh, and you'll get sort of the trail of my glory. Now, people have, uh, like I said, human history is the history of us trying to get back into God's presence, trying to find God on our own. One example is very early in the book of Genesis, we have the story of the Tower of Babel. And what happens at the Tower of Babel is a bunch of people get together and they try to build a, um, uh, a tower that will reach up into the heavens so that they can have a great name for themselves. And that's basically the story of they think God is up there somewhere and the higher up we can get, uh, the closer to God we will be. And that theme continues as we read through the story of Israel we read about this weird practice that God is continually condemning. It's called the high places. And what happened was they were worshiping God, but they were doing it by using um, sort of a pagan method, right? A pagan ritual. And what this was, it was the same idea. They thought the higher up you are, the closer to God you are, and the more your prayers and sacrifices will be heard and accepted. And so they would build these altars up at the top of these mountains. And one of the things we actually read in the book of Kings is how... Um, uh, each king is judged by whether or not they destroyed those high places, whether or not they rid the, the worship of Yahweh through these pagan practices. And so we have these examples, right, of people trying to get, trying to, get to uh, God on their own. And all throughout this time when this is happening in the Old Testament, God promises that this mediator is coming, somebody to stand between God 
and mankind, to represent both parties and bring them back together. And Zechariah, in his song that we read last week, he has this, my, I told you, it's one of my favorite parts of the whole book of Luke, where he talks about how the dawn has come. God has sent a light. He has come himself. And the idea is this, while mankind has spent all of this time trying to build these buildings and do these different rituals and all this different stuff to get themselves up to God, what happened was God came down to us, right? And uh, since we can't get to him, he has come down to us. Um, there's this, uh, there's a story also in the book of Genesis and it's the story of Jacob and he's running from Esau and you know, it's, uh, um, uh, one night he's sleeping and he puts his head down on this rock and he has this dream. And in the dream, what he sees is this staircase or we call it Jacob's ladder, right? Uh, he sees this staircase between heaven and earth. And in the dream, as he looks at this staircase, what's happening is, um, angels are going back and forth on this staircase, right? This ladder. And uh, they're going back and forth uh, between heaven and between earth, but he can't. There's still this gap, right? Nowhere in the story, uh, in the dream, is Jacob told, hey, get on that staircase and get your way to heaven. And that's just sort of how it ends. He sees this staircase. Fast forward about 2,000 years. Jesus meets this guy, and his name's Nathaniel, and he became, he eventually became one of the disciples. And they're having this conversation, and at the end, uh, Nathaniel is basically blown away by something that Jesus has said to him. We don't need to get into that. And then Jesus said to him, you know, basically, you think that's amazing. Watch this. He said, uh, John 151, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So that's a reference to that Jacob's ladder story. And Jesus in meeting Nathaniel says this, look, here's what, what can't happen is you cannot climb the staircase right? You can't climb up into heaven. And so what we've done, what God has done is he says, I've come down to you, right? God has come down. Jesus says, I am the staircase, the link between man and God. That's who Jesus is. God come down to be that staircase and to bridge that gap. And that's why John the apostle says in John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth, right? The word became flesh and dwelt, literally it says tabernacled among us. So do you see the tension there? As we read the story of Luke and the gospel of Luke, we're going to see two things about Jesus. He is clearly a human being. He gets thirsty and tired. He suffers pain. Uh, Spoiler alert, right? Towards the end of the story there, he even dies on the cross. But at the same time, this guy who is clearly a human is clearly divine. He raises the dead. He heals people. He forgives sins. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, And so there's this tension here, right? We have the human and the divine intention. And so the New City Catechism, again, question 21. So we just read question 20. Here's question 21. It says, what sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? And then the answer, one who is truly human and also truly God. Uh, Wayne Grudem, who wrote a book, I have a copy of it right here, even though I don't think I've read the actual paper copy of this book in just about forever because I use this in my Bible software. But um, it's not the best. He wrote a book called Systematic Theology. It's not the best book in the entire world, but the reason I always use it and I love it so much is um, he is a he is a master at taking complicated ideas and presenting them simply. And so for just uh, regular church use, this is a really great book. So if you don't have this book, I would recommend you get it because I talk about it a lot. 
And generally, when I quote systematic theologies in sermons, this is the book that I'm going to use. So um, you can get it on Kindle. You can get it in like Logos Bible software is where I use it a lot. Or you can, you know, you can get a paper, you know, this thing is gigantic, uh, weighs like 30 pounds. Anyway, Wayne Grudem, in talking about this, he said this. He, he defined the incarnation like this. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. So there's three parts to that statement. The first is that Jesus is fully God, fully divine. The second is he is fully man. So he was a real, actual human being. And then the third part of that statement is all of this, this fully God, fully man is in one person. And so we're going to cover all three of those points, uh, but we're going to do, um, uh, we'll talk more about the humanity in another sermon at the end of chapter two. So today what we're going to do is we're going to cover the point that Jesus is fully God, and then we're going to cover the idea of how all of this is in one person, the humanity and the deity in one person. And then I actually put off the humanity part uh, for a few weeks towards the end of um, chapter two. And so um, how does this humanity and deity, how does all this work? So we'll start here with the deity of Christ. So just sort of to set this up, there has been, even though the church has consistently taught that Jesus is God, uh, there has recently especially been widespread denial of the deity of Christ. Uh, there's been attacks from the inside and from the outside of the church on this idea. Um, one example of this is a, um, a scholar, I don't remember where, I think he's at Duke, Divinity School, maybe? Uh, his name's Bart Ehrman. It, <clears throat> he wrote a book called How Jesus Became God. And in that book, he says this. This is a quote. He says, Jesus himself didn't call him, uh, yeah, Jesus himself didn't call himself God and didn't consider himself God. And so the, the whole premise of his book is this. And I'll admit, I haven't read the whole book. I've read bits and pieces and kind of skimmed it. But his premise is this. The church made up the whole idea that Jesus was divine much later on, like at the Council of Nicaea that we'll talk about and some of that other stuff. That same idea is sort of one of the building blocks of Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, that Jesus was just a regular teacher, regular guy, um, who 300 years later, the church made up all this stuff about him being God. So let's take a look at that. Is that true? Uh, well, what we'll look at a few things. First, what did the New Testament say? And then what did the early church say about this? So we'll start with the New Testament. The biblical case, I think, is overwhelming that the New Testament authors believed that Jesus was God. The first place to start is with the Greek word theos. The Greek word theos means God. Uh, and that word in tons of places in the New Testament is used specifically to describe Jesus. So it doesn't really get any more plain than this, right? Like example, the first example is in John 1, 1. It says, in the beginning was the word, talking about Jesus, and the word was with God, and here it is, and the word was God. So Jesus is, you know, was theos, is how it, what it says there. Um, and then Romans 9 says this, Paul says this, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, and here he says it, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So there's actually a lot more places that I could, you know, I didn't want to read to you a ton of verses, um, but there are other verses where this happens. And so it's important to remember that these verses were written by first century uh, religious Jewish folks, and it was absolutely blasphemous to call anybody God who wasn't God. But these men, they did just that because they actually believed it. So that's the first, the first building block of our case that the New Testament calls 
Jesus divine. The second is the Greek word kyrios. Uh, it means Lord, and it's used of Jesus constantly. We just read this in Luke one forty three, where Elizabeth uh, calls Mary the mother of my Lord. You know, uh, she calls Jesus Lord in that instance, and we see this all over the New Testament. The Lord Jesus Christ. You know, literally, I could dozens and dozens of verses I could have read there, but there's a bunch of other examples of verses that just seem to to push us towards the direction that Jesus is divine, right? Like uh, in John 1, 3, uh, John says that uh, all things were made through Jesus. He is the creator, and we all know God is the creator. Um, in John eight fifty eight, Jesus talking about himself, he says this, before Abraham was, I am, using the, the name of God, Yahweh. He's saying, before Abraham was, I am the one who always existed. That's a very bold claim for uh, any Jewish person. That was a blasphemous claim unless you actually were God. Um, in Revelation 22, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, meaning I'm the beginning and the end. A title in chapter, I think it's chapter one or two, I don't remember off the top of my head, uh, that's used specifically of God the Father, right? And so we have these instances. Um, we have the uh, the name, the Son of Man, uh, that Jesus loves to use to describe himself. We think that means, oh, he's a human being. He's a son of a man. But what that actually was is, is a reference uh, to the book of Daniel, this divine being, the Son of Man. And so Jesus calling himself that is claiming to be that divine being. Um, Jesus claims in a lot of different spots to forgive sins. And at one spot when he does this, his opponents even say this. This is Luke 5. We'll get there. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Meaning only God gets to forgive sins. And here is Jesus claiming to have that power and that authority. Uh, Thomas, one of his disciples, calls him my Lord and my God in John 20, 28. Uh, you know, the story of doubting Thomas after he's risen from the dead and Jesus shows himself to Thomas. This is his reaction, my Lord and my God. And then in one spot, he blatantly claims to be God. Jesus says this, I and the Father are one. And then the response of the people around him, it says, so they tried to stone him. They didn't, there was no misunderstanding there in what Jesus was claiming to do and what Jesus was claiming, uh, who he was claiming to be. And so I don't really understand how Bart Ehrman can say that Jesus never really claimed to be God because he did. Um, and then, so we have some of these Greek words, we have these instances, um, but one of the strongest cases that these New Testament authors believed Jesus was divine was that some of his enemies turned into his followers and worshiped him as God. So think about this for a sec. Paul the Apostle started out as the church's greatest persecutor, and then he became the persecuted pastor, right? And uh, he wrote that verse in Romans that we just read where he calls Jesus God. But the most amazing one is this. It's his little brother, James, who became one of the leaders of the early church. And in James, uh, in the, he wrote the book of James. And in James 2, uh, verse 1, it says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold... Uh, the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, he calls him this, the Lord of glory. Now I have two brothers and let me tell you what it would take for me to call either one of my brothers, the Lord of glory. They would have to actually be God and they would have to have risen from the dead and proved it to me. If my little brother came up to me and said, Hey John, I'm God. I would laugh in his face right? He would have to actually prove it to me. And the fact that James, the little brother of Jesus, worshiped him as, as uh, divine is, uh, is pretty overwhelming evidence. 
And so that's what we have sort of in the New Testament era. But what about right after the New Testament? Um, The early church also believed that Jesus was God. This isn't something that popped up 400 years later. Um, It starts with just talking about some of the denials of the deity of Christ. So there were certain groups that denied that Jesus was God, and uh, they were condemned by the church. So the first group is called... um, uh, this first teaching is called Ebionism, and it was an early Jewish view of Jesus, and it basically taught that he was an ordinary uh, human being, but he didn't have any special gifts or anything like that. And then at his baptism, sort of something like the Christ consciousness came upon him, and then that that Christ consciousness left him towards the end of his life just before his death. And while that view has mostly faded out of Christianity, you won't really find any Christian sects that teach this view, this is the basic Islamic view of Jesus as the prophet, who uh, was this uh, prophet who then the, the, you know, whatever, just like, it's very similar view, not the exact same view, but it's similar. Um, The second view is sort of uh, took Ebionism uh, and expanded it and made it more organized. And this view we called Arianism. And it was led by a guy named Arius uh, in the fourth century. And it's complicated, uh, but basically it said that Jesus isn't God. He's more of something like a demigod and that he had a beginning and he's a part of creation, although a higher part of creation than everybody else. So basically it's like there's people and angels and all of creation. Then there's Jesus in between and then there's God at the top. And so the idea with Arianism is that he had a similar nature to God, different from ours, similar to God, but not exactly the same as the Father. And so to both of these denials of Jesus's divinity, the early church really stood strong. And one of the earliest songs that we have from the church uh, is in Colossians 1.19. It says this, for uh, in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is something that the early church would sing. Or I have a couple of quotes here from just some of the very earliest church fathers. So one of them is named Ignatius. And he said this, I pray for your happiness forever in Jesus Christ, our God. Um, So in this letter that he's writing, he specifically calls Jesus God. Uh, Justin Martyr, uh, in so uh, Ignatius was in 105 AD. Justin Martyr, about 50 years later, said this, the word Jesus, he is divine. So um, just within... 70 years of Jesus rising from the dead and taking off into heaven, Justin Martyr, uh, sorry, Ignatius was writing his little thing. And then a couple years later, Justin Martyr was writing it. And then fast forward, uh, you know, a couple hundred more years, the Nicene Creed is where a bunch of guys got together and they actually hammered this out. What do we believe uh, about the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus, some of this stuff. And so in 451, the Nicene Creed came up with this. I'm going to read this whole thing. It's kind of long here, but um, I want you to see this. It says, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God, begotten of the father before all worlds, God of God, light of light. And this is the important part. Very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was uh, incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, was made man, was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again, according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. 
So it's true that uh, at the Council of Nicaea, they sat down and they put very specific language to this idea that Jesus was divine. But it was something that uh, the church had really believed all along, from the New Testament to the earliest church apostolic fathers, to the church fathers after those guys, all the way to the Council of Nicaea. And so there's actually a lot more examples that I could have chosen. Um, I clipped literally hundreds of pages of notes prepping for this sermon. The, I feel like the case is pretty overwhelming uh, that at least the early church believed that Jesus was divine, right? The church fathers wholeheartedly believed that this man, Jesus Christ, who walked around Israel in the first century was actually God in the flesh. But why? Why is this such an important theological idea? Um, well, why did he have to be God? There's another guy who wrote a book um, his name's Millard Erickson. He wrote a few different theological books. Um, he's pretty great, too. And uh, just like Grudem's book, his is the other one I really like. And uh, he gives us four reasons why the divinity of Jesus is so important. And so I actually had a couple of these written up, and I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to rip off Millard Erickson's four reasons because he put them so well. So the first reason is this. Because Jesus was God, redemption is available to us. The idea is that um, only God could be the one to actually pay the price for our sin because only God could be a sinless man. Um, the New City Catechism puts it like this in question 23. So we've read a couple of these questions leading up to question 23. Uh, it says, why must the Redeemer be truly God? And then the answer, that because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective, and also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. So because he was God, he was able to live the perfect life, die the death in our place, uh, absorb the wrath of God, and then overcome death. He couldn't have done that without that divine nature. So that's the first reason. The second reason is because Jesus is divine, we can have a real knowledge of God. So in John 14, Jesus says this, uh, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? So the disciples are asking Jesus, hey, show us the father. And he goes, hey, look, dummies, if you see me, you are seeing God, right? Uh, so because Jesus came, we can have a, a better knowledge of who God is because he was here and he lived this life on earth. Um, to sort of illustrate this, have you ever seen someone, uh, sorry, not seen someone for quite a while? Uh, and then after you do, they come back, you know, after you do finally see them after years, they're like a completely different person. And what happened was the distance made it hard for you to know the person that they were becoming, right? The person that they were. Now, God doesn't change and let's not get into all that. But you see the idea, right? The same is true with us. The separation of sin makes it hard for us to know who God really is. Um, but Jesus coming now has sort of bridged that gap in our knowledge. So in Hebrews 1, the author of Hebrews gets to say this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And so when we look at Jesus, we can have an accurate picture of who God is. God is speaking to us, not just through the Bible, but through the life of his son. 
So that's the second reason Erickson gives us. The third reason is that because Jesus is divine, God and humanity now have been reunited. So this relationship, like I said, we could never reach up to God and bridge the gap between us. And so God has come down. He is Jacob's ladder, right? Jesus is that bridge that's brought these two warring parties back together. And because of all of that, the fourth reason is that because Jesus is divine, uh, his fourth reason is that worship of Christ is appropriate. So Philippians 2.10 says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, right? In Islam, they don't worship Muhammad, uh, right? In uh, Buddhism, they don't worship Buddha. But in Christianity, we worship Jesus, a man, an actual guy who walked around and probably at some point stubbed his toe and... Uh, you know, got tired, had real feelings, was sad, was happy, who laughed and ate and drank and lived an actual life. This guy, we worship him as God because he is the God man, the divine son of God. That would be completely inappropriate if he wasn't uh, divine. If he was just some regular dude, he does not demand worship, right? He could not demand worship. He wouldn't deserve it, but Jesus does. And so that's the divinity of Christ. Um, remember though, there's three parts to this that I wanted to do. There's Jesus is God, Jesus is man, and how those two things work together in one unified person. So we did Jesus is divine. We're going to skip the Jesus is man part, and we're going to do that in a few weeks, the humanity of Jesus. Uh, and we're going to jump to how do these two natures work, uh, together, right? How do they interact? And so um, let me just, again, read this theological idea from the Wayne Grudem book, the theological statement that we're, we're trying to argue for here. Jesus Christ was fully God. He was fully man, uh, sorry, fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. That's what the church has always believed. And so another way to help us understand this is to take a look at some of the false views that have popped up in church history. So some of these guys came to came around and said no this is what we believe and the church said no 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 that's wrong and then it helped us clarify what we actually believe so the first false view is called apollinarianism <laughs> that's a mouthful right so apollinarius was a bishop in laodicea in uh, the 360s ad and basically what he taught was that jesus had a human body but his mind and his soul were not human they were divine, right? So uh, he only part of Jesus was human and part of Jesus was divine, as opposed to he's fully God, fully man in one person. So basically, like he sort of split Jesus in half. This half over here is human. This half over here is divine. The second false view is called uh, Nestorianism. Now, Nestorius was the bishop of Constantinople in the mid-5th century, and his teaching was something like Jesus was actually two different people in one body. So the idea was there was a human person, a divine person, and both of them um, uh, lived in the body of Jesus. So theoretically, Jesus's human side could have wanted to do one thing, and then his divine side could have disagreed with his human side. And inside the body of Jesus, there were these two different people uh, arguing with each other. It's like, I don't know if how many of you grew up here in San Francisco, but if you did, back in the day, at least when I was a kid, like in the late 80s, early 90s, at the Academy of Sciences down in Golden Gate Park, they had a two-headed snake. And the snake had two heads, two brains, and one long body. 
And uh, the I remember the guy telling me, the tour guide or whatever, saying that it's actually really hard to feed this snake because they always try to take the food from each other. So there's these two, there's one body, but there's two minds and they're always fighting. And these snakes don't live very long because these two heads don't get along and it causes all kinds of problems. That's basically the view of Nestorius is that that's what was happening inside Jesus. That it was actually like the two headed snake, right? There's a divine head and there's a human head, but there's one body. And uh, yeah, so that's Nestorianism. The next is Eutychianism. Boy, say that 10 times fast, right? Eutychianism. Now, Apollinarianism says that Jesus was part human and he was part divine, right? So one person with two half natures, not fully human, not fully divine. Nestorianism said that Jesus was two people fighting inside the one body. Eutychianism was the idea that Jesus's nature was uh, not it was a mixture of divine divinity and humanity. So he was one person with one nature, but his nature was sort of a mishmash of uh, divinity and humanity, right? Um, they said his nature was kind of like, I don't know if you ever used to do the suicide sodas. I used to do this at Costco when I was a kid. You know, you just get one thing from each of the sodas and then you make this disgusting soda that doesn't taste like any of them. They said that that's basically what Jesus's nature was like. It was sort of a mix of humanity and divinity. So it didn't look like real humanity. It didn't look like real uh, divinity. It was sort of this mishmash, this combo. So it wasn't a real version of either. And so the church's response to this was they gathered together at the Council of Chalcedon. Uh, just outside of Constantinople. It was like a suburb of Constantinople. Now, let me explain to you what these church councils were. Back in the day, uh, when they would have one of these theological uh, debates, right, like the Nicene Council and these different ones, uh, all the leaders from the church would get together and guided by the Holy Spirit is uh, what they believed. They would hammer out sort of what we believe the Bible actually says. And the goal of these councils was not to come up with anything new. The goal of these councils was to put into clear words what the church had always believed against the things, these false teachings that were popping up. And so to write this down 400 years after Jesus died, the only reason they wrote it down now was because they had to um, combat these false views that hadn't really been around before. So as the false views popped up, it caused the church to clarify what it is that they believed. And so... Um, I'm not going to read the whole Council of Chalcedon statement. Uh, it's very long, or not really long, but it's kind of complicated. Uh, and I'll put it on the website. But basically, it lays out what uh, theologians call the hypostatic union. Um, it's all about how Jesus was fully divine, fully human, and fully a hippo. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, hypostasis was a word that meant uh, substance or being. So the hypostatic union is the union of Jesus's being, the perfect humanity, the perfect divinity inside one person. And that's where Wayne Grudem gets that definition. What he's doing is he's just summing up uh, the council of Chalcedon, right? Jesus is fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. So these two natures in one person, one person of Jesus Christ, at the same time, he is fully God and he is fully human. And so how does this work exactly? Uh, the truth is, we don't really know. Uh, we want to keep those two things in tension, but we don't want to go beyond what the Bible says. And so the Bible has given us enough to believe who Jesus is, 
but it hasn't fully explained it. Maybe we'll know more when we get into eternity. Um, but for now, it's a mystery that I'm okay living with because I have enough to believe in what the Bible already says. And so that's what they do. They tried to go as far as what the Bible says, but not any further. But the other thing that they did was at the Council of Chalcedon, uh, in this creed, they basically... Uh, they tried to answer all three of those false teachings that I just talked about against the view of Apollinarianism that Christ didn't have a human mind or a human soul, but only a human body. Uh, the creed says this, that Jesus was truly man of a reasonable soul and body, having the same nature with us according to the manhood in all things like unto us. So basically they said, look, dude, you're wrong. He had a human mind, human soul, human body, all of it. Against uh, the Nestorianism, uh, that Jesus was two people in one body, like the two-headed snake, it said this, that he was indivisibly, inseparably concurring in one person and one substance, not parted or divided into two persons. Right? So no, I'm sorry guys, he's not two people, they said that. And against the view of Eutychidianism that said that Jesus only had one nature that was like mixing all of those sodas, it says this, to be acknowledged in two natures, he's to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature is being preserved. Basically, he was a real human being and he was really divine all at the same time, and neither of those two natures took away from the other. He was fully God and fully man at the same time. And so that's what we have today, the divinity of Christ on the one hand. Um, we'll talk about humanity later on, how human he was and how that worked, um, and the, the way that these two natures played together. Now, the question then to leave us with is who cares? right? You don't, you don't have to memorize any of the stuff. You don't have to show up next week and be able to recite the Council of Chalcedon or whatever. Um, there was a lot of information here today. Um, but the question is, what does this actually mean for me today? Well, the thing is, the more that we know about who Jesus is, and the more that we understand the truth that he has revealed to us, the more that we will love and serve him. And who Jesus is who his nature was, the God-man, is foundational to the gospel story. God became a man, he lived a life, he died, he rose again, and he ascended to heaven where he is ruling on high, but in his actual physical resurrection body. He really was God, able to pay the full penalty for sin, able to forgive sin, but he also really is man. Uh, actually a man. He understands our temptations, our pain. He's able to represent us humans as the perfect mediator because he is actually truly one of us. And all of this, all of this gives us reasons to worship him as our king, the man who is God, the God who became man, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do today to end uh, is to read from Philippians chapter 2, and then I'll throw it over and we'll read, uh, sorry, we'll sing together one last worship song. So this this section in Philippians 2, I'm pretty sure we'll cover this a little bit more. I haven't written that sermon on the humanity yet, uh, but we'll cover this, I bet, in um, a bunch of stuff at the end of chapter 2. But like I said, this really is one of the most rich passages on the incarnation. It's Philippians 2. I'll read 5 through 11, then I'll pray and I'll throw it over and we'll go back to worship. It's Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, and then it goes on to describe Christ Jesus, who, though he was 
in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the God-man, you know, that you came to earth uh, to live the perfect life that we could never live, to be the perfect sacrifice that we could never be, uh, to buy redemption for your people. We thank you that in your humanity, you understand our temptations, you understand our pain and what it's like uh, to be us. But we also thank you that in your deity, you could represent us better and um, you know, you could be the sinless sacrifice. And so I know, Lord, today that uh, we shared a lot of, you know, I shared a lot of information, uh, big, you know, there's a lot of stuff here. And I pray that none of this would be weighty academic information that would just go in one ear and out the other, but um, that the truth of who you are that the church has struggled with and uh, wrestled with defining what we see in scripture, that that truth really would penetrate into our hearts and um, that uh, the truth of the incarnation would uh, not just be interesting facts that we know about church history, but it, it would be something that causes us to love you more than we did yesterday. And so we thank you, Lord. We love you so much. Amen.